Hi everyone, welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. Took a short break there to dive into some current events, but I'm back with Israeli history. We've got a handful of episodes left on our fourth season, A History of Israel from 1948 to 1967. And if we had to bundle these episodes together under a single heading, we might call it Things That Happened in the Early 1960s, or Israel, The Teenage Years. Actually, I like the last one. I might use that. But coinciding with the trial of Adolf Eichmann in 1961, Israel hit 13 years old. As with adolescence, the country had done a lot of growing up, and had reached the point where generational changes started taking place. Today we're going to be looking at some of Israel's most important institutions. Hebrew, the kibbutz, the army, and politics, what's been achieved, what's changing, and how that's all setting the stage for the rest of this season and beyond. The teenage years, as we all know, contain both growth and challenge. It's all leading up to the war that will usher Israel quite fully into adulthood. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew I Don't Know. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. One of the things I find most interesting about Israeli history is just how much had to be created and constructed to build this country, from the big things to the small. Zionism was developed as a national ideology for people who didn't yet have their nation. There wasn't a ready-made language, so the Jews had to reinvent and reintroduce Hebrew in order to have a national tongue. If they wanted agriculture, they had to drain the swamps. If they wanted cities, they had to start on an empty beach. If they wanted an army, they had to train themselves. If they wanted schools, they had to teach themselves. If they wanted to know their history, they had to dig it up. And if they wanted justice for their enemies, sometimes they had to go to Argentina and capture them. Even by the 1960s, there were no official borders between Israel and its hostile neighbors, only some ceasefire lines on a map that people pretended were real. Sure, Israel had allies, and a small trade economy, and it was part of the community of nations. But Israel had arrived in the 1960s largely through grit and determination, austerity and sacrifice. It had created a citizenry and an Israeli identity. It had created a lot of big problems along the way, no doubt. But moving into the 1960s, all these efforts were starting to pay off. It was the little state that could. In the 1880s, Eliezer ben Yehuda had diligently taken the fragments of Biblical Hebrew from 2,000 years ago, extracted their roots, and replanted them in new words for a modern people to use in their new modern homeland. Now, less than a hundred years later, the success of Hebrew was acclaimed on the world stage. Shai Agnon, one of Israel's foremost writers, won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Shai Agnon, who is also known as S.Y. Agnon, was born in the Ukraine and came to what was then Palestine in 1908. He quickly made a name for himself as a writer in both Hebrew and Yiddish. His stories reflected the tension in Eastern Europe between traditional Jewish life and modernity, and the impact on the Jewish condition of the movement to the land of Israel. At a time when many prominent Jewish writers were assimilated secular Europeans, Shai Agnon mined his deeply religious heritage to frame his stories and characters. He even maintained certain biblical Hebrew words and phrases rather than adopt the new terms. In 1966, he became Israel and Hebrew's first and only recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature. He shared the prize that year with a German-Jewish poet named Nellie Sachs who lived in Sweden. 
In his acceptance speech, delivered in Hebrew, Shai Agnon made explicit his and the Jewish people's ancient connection with the land of Israel. As a result of the historic catastrophe in which Titus of Rome destroyed Jerusalem and Israel was exiled from its land, he said, I was born in one of those cities of the exile, but always I regarded myself as one who was born in Jerusalem. The Hebrew Bible and the great Jewish texts were his biggest influences, those he credited as responsible for his receiving the prize. And he also credited the land of Israel, the people in it, Jews and non-Jews alike, who had shared their stories, but also the nature and places of Israel. The Dead Sea, he said, which I used to see every morning at sunrise from the roof of my house, the Arnon Brook in which I used to bathe, the nights I used to spend with devout and pious men beside the Wailing Wall, nights which gave me eyes to see the land of the Holy One, blessed be he, the wall which he gave us, and the city in which he established his name. Shai Agnon's acceptance speech was an explicitly Jewish text itself, merging the power of storytelling Jewish tradition in the land of Israel. Although Israel and a variety of authors had been lobbying for his acceptance for some time, his win was a big surprise, and it lit up the spirit of the country. A master of Hebrew literature, the revived language of the little nation that could, received the most coveted prize on the world stage. For Israel, it was a huge leap forward. They put his portrait on the 50-shekel banknote. Hebrew wasn't the only Israeli institution that was thriving. So were the little villages upon which Hebrew had been adopted as the mother tongue. The collective farming communities known as the Kibbutzim had, by the 1960s, become an essential pillar of the Jewish state. The kibbutz had been created to solve a financial agricultural problem at the turn of the century. Individual farms couldn't survive, so the early Jewish pioneers in Palestine had to collectivize. The kibbutz merged Zionism and socialism that, as a radical experiment, was highly successful by the time Israel was established. From each according to his ability, and to each according to his needs, went the famous formulation from Karl Marx, and that's how the kibbutz operated. It wasn't just a matter of squaring up material possessions, but also of establishing a society of true equality amongst people. Children shared clothes, workers shared income, all meals were communal, no property was owned individually, and an extremely democratic process fed every decision. The first kibbutz was founded in 1909 on the southern shore of the Sea of Galilee, called Kibbutz de Ganya. It quickly expanded, and by 1920, 25 of its members, including a young pioneer named Levi Eshkol, formed Daganya Bet next door. I've stayed there many times. I highly recommend the chocolate shop. Dozens more kibbutzim popped up, concentrated in the north of the country. They not only served ideological and agricultural needs, but defensive ones too. Kibbutzim were often built along the edges between Jewish and Arab land, gradually pushing out the frontier of the growing Jewish homeland. The pre-state army, called the Haganah, was founded in part to pull together in one system the defense of the kibbutzim. Young and rising leaders like Levi Eshkol created the Haganah and its elite fighting force called the Palmach to train these Jewish farmers also as soldiers and with the same egalitarian spirit that animated their kibbutzim. By 1960, there were about 230 kibbutzim with 78,000 Israelis, 
and of a total population of a little over 2 million. The great Israeli socialist enterprise was enjoying a huge success, and even expanding. As their members had aged, kibbutzim diversified beyond the labor intensity required of farming. The kibbutz adopted light manufacturing, for instance, or small specialized factories. By the 1960s, the kibbutz offered a middle-class lifestyle for blue-collar workers. You know you made it when your kibbutz built a swimming pool, a sure sign of leisure and success. So the kibbutzim were growing and enjoying a heyday as a unique Israeli institution. But they were also changing. The strict socialist ideology that had governed kibbutz life for decades started to form cracks. Initially there was a symbiosis between kibbutz socialism and Israeli foreign policy, as the country was recognized by the Soviet Union, and it curried favor with both the communist bloc and the non-aligned movement of countries which didn't want to pick sides in the Cold War. But Joseph Stalin's anti-Semitism got the better of him, and Russia turned on Israel, and Israel was simultaneously pursuing allies more with the West. This divided the kibbutz movement, as individual members began to fiercely disagree over politics. Some of these communal dining halls became shouting matches, and members would split off to form their own kibbutzim, some more communist aligned than others. Partisanship split the national kibbutz movement into three separate parts in the 1950s. Each kibbutz was now aligned with a different organization and political party. Imagine if one town declared that it was an official outpost of the Republican Party, and the one next door the Democratic Party, and still another nearby the Independent Party. On the day-to-day, -day, things might be going smoothly, but over time, you're going to run into trouble. And you also started to see changing ideas about the preeminence of communal property versus individual needs. This was always a challenge, human nature being what it is. The question was how much to tolerate. And here's an example. By the 1950s, tens of thousands of Holocaust survivors lived in Kibbutzim. Under the reparations agreement between Israel, Germany, and world Jewry, they began receiving financial compensation for their suffering during the war. So should they keep it? Or should it be turned over to the kibbutz, as with all other forms of income? Most kibbutzim allowed the survivors to keep all or most of those payments, but it represented a profound shift. Suddenly, not everyone was quite equal. On the slippery slope of change, this was a significant push that would have big implications in the 1970s and 80s. These successes and changes in the kibbutz were no small thing. For the kibbutz was essential to Israeli society. The collective community was not only the physical manifestation of the practice of Zionism and socialism, it was also where Israel's elites were born, raised, and trained. Despite hosting only 4% of the nation's population, the kibbutz produced 15% of the members of the Knesset. That percentage rose to 25% when you looked at just the left-wing parties which ran the government. The most celebrated writers and artists were often kibbutzniks, Education was better on the kibbutz than elsewhere, as was economic productivity. Israel was now one of the fastest growing countries in the world, and a significant chunk of that was from the agricultural exports of its farming communities. And especially important was the kibbutz's impact on another essential Israeli institution, the military. Thank you. 
There has long been a strong connection between the Israel Defense Forces and the Kibbutz. Howard Sacker writes that by 1967, 30% of Air Force pilots were from a Kibbutz, as were 22% of the officers. You also had the Nahal unit, in which groups of soldiers would form a kibbutz, usually along Israel's border, to provide both security and agriculture. Around a hundred kibbutzim were established this way. There was a stereotype that the kibbutznik was the most daring and elite soldier, having been raised in the physically intense, egalitarian, communal environment of the kibbutz, exactly the kind of ideological background that Ben-Gurion and the nation's military leaders were looking for. From the beginning of the state, David Ben-Gurion understood that the country's military was going to have to be more than just an organization for fighting wars. After all, it was clear that the army was going to be a major pillar of Israeli society, given how much a role security would need to be. The primary function of the defense forces, he wrote, has been to safeguard the state. However, this is not its sole function. The army must also serve as an educational and pioneering center for Israel's youth, for both those born here and newcomers. It is the duty of the army to educate a pioneer generation, healthy in body and spirit, courageous and loyal, which will unite the broken tribes and diasporas to prepare themselves to fulfill the historic tasks of the State of Israel through self-realization. So the point was that the IDF was to be the great melting pot of Israeli society. Military service was, and still is, compulsory at age 18 for both men and women. The army was the one place where all of Israel would come together. Tel Aviv in the desert, Ashkenazi, Sephardic and Mizrahi, rich and poor, native Israelis with new immigrants. It maintained a certain egalitarian spirit. There wasn't a lot of emphasis on saluting, and low-level privates often argued with their superior officers. And of course, the IDF had already proved itself in the War of Independence and subsequent smaller battles. But still, there were growing pains and changes. It turns out that the melting pot wasn't melting so smoothly. The huge influx of new immigrants and their difficulties in grasping Hebrew made for a steep learning curve. So in the 1950s, Moshe Dayan was brought in as the chief of staff to make improvements. He's our warrior god with the recognizable black eye patch who had already distinguished himself as a combat leader. Over the next decade, he whipped the army into shape, professionalizing and organizing it. One of his most innovative and important changes was in leadership. From now on, officers were to lead not from the back, but up front with their troops. It was a change, still around today, that would usher the IDF into a new era and pay off huge in the war still to come in 1967. The army was yet another Israeli institution that was growing and changing. Perhaps the biggest change in the 1960s was in politics. Now don't get too excited. The left is still in charge, as they always have been and as they will be for another 15 years. But internally, the left wing was at war with each other. Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion was about to score a colossal own goal. He just couldn't let go of a political scandal that most of the rest of the country had already stopped paying attention to. Back in episode 84 on Stay Boker, I talked about the Lavone affair of the mid-1950s. Here's the short version. An Israeli sabotage operation against Egypt had failed spectacularly. 
The army blamed the Minister of Defense at the time, Pinchas Lavon, for the failure, claiming he had ordered it. Pinchas Lavon blamed the military, claiming he hadn't even known about it until it was all over. An investigation cleared Lavon of any wrongdoing, but he was still forced to step down as defense minister, although he went on to serve in other high-level official posts within the left-wing party, which was called Mapai. This was the party that David Ben-Gurion ran. Now that was back in 1955. In 1960, new evidence came to light further proving Lavon's innocence and the military's failure. Ben-Gurion refused to accept this and ordered another investigation. That one, too, reached the same conclusion. So Ben-Gurion again went for the split and doubled down his bet. New investigation, same result. The Israeli public was totally confused. They didn't know about this failed sabotage operation since it was top secret. All they knew was that Ben-Gurion seemed to have a huge grudge against Pinchas Lavon, and it was tearing the Mapai party apart. When none of the investigations absolved the military leadership of responsibility, Ben-Gurion in 1961 declared that he would resign as prime minister unless Pinchas Lavon was kicked out of the party. So he was kicked out. But he took a bunch of his friends with him, and they split off to form another left-wing party. Because of the nature of Israel's coalition politics, Ben-Gurion lost enough support that the new elections had to be called. Ben-Gurion won. But still, he was now much weaker, and half the left hated him. Okay, so what was going on? Ben-Gurion claimed that this fight was about democracy, and who should be allowed to pass judgment on political officials. But that's not what this was really about. It was really about a generational fight between the old guard and the new kids on the left. The old guard were people like Pinchas Lavon, Moshe Sharet, Golda Meir, and Levi Eshkol, the original sidekicks of the Zionist movement who created and built the Jewish state up to this point. They had turned the socialist and labor principles of Zionism into a nation state and were determined to continue that ideology as the country's governing philosophy. But since 1948, a new generation had now emerged, People like Moshe Dayan and Shimon Peres. Dayan was the IDF's highest-ranking officer, and Shimon Peres was like the chief operations officer for the defense ministry. The new kids were less attached to Zionist philosophy than they were to upgrading to Israel 2.0. If they could improve the economy, the military, and the government by letting some Zionist socialist principles slide, they were cool with that. Ben-Gurion may have been the original old guard, but he was still with the new kids. Moshe Dayan and Shimon Peres were his hand-picked protégés, and he wanted them to succeed. Ben-Gurion had seized on this strange and secret political scandal to try to clean house, and it wasn't going very well. Ben-Gurion was never one to back down from a fight, even when it would cost him personally and politically. But this time, even his most ardent supporters urged him to just let it go. Ben-Gurion thought he was standing on principle, but most of the Israeli public saw him as unfairly bullying Pinchas Lavon, who had clearly done nothing wrong. As Anita Shapira writes, all of the qualities that had made him a leader, his resolve, stubbornness, polemic ability, ability to stand on principles, and total identification of his personal interests with those of the nation now hardened into obsessiveness. He just couldn't let it go. At 76 years old, tired, annoyed, and politically weak, 
David Ben-Gurion announced his resignation as Prime Minister on June 15, 1963. He was going to stay Belker, he said, to write his memoirs so that the nation's youth might understand how the State of Israel came into being. Unlike when he had resigned in the mid-1950s, this time he wouldn't be coming back. The man who had announced the establishment of the State of Israel was finally stepping out of the spotlight. Replacing him as Prime Minister was Levi Eshkol, one of the founders of Kibbutz Dagan Yabet, a longtime labor leader and political official on the left who oversaw the absorption of immigrants in the 1950s, one of the most crucial and successful tasks in the new state. He was a member of the Old Guard, having come from the Ukraine during the Second Aliyah, and he was immensely well-liked in Israel. He didn't have the brilliance or ambition or charisma of Ben-Gurion, but he also didn't have his predecessor's lesser qualities. He was accessible, quiet, a decent guy. His job was to end the Lavon affair once and for all, which he did, and then get about the business of governing, while keeping politics as quiet as possible. That last part didn't quite work, as Ben-Gurion was still scheming down there in Stabokar, but we'll get to that another time. So ultimately, what we are seeing here in the 1960s is Israel's teenage years of growth, change, and challenge. If you want to understand Israel, you have to know about its major institutions, like Hebrew, the kibbutz, the army, and politics. The big themes stayed the same, like around security and the left-wing domination of politics, and the deep connections between the kibbutz, army, and political leadership. These were the essential institutions of Israel, but they also had a glaring flaw. They didn't include all Israelis. It was abundantly clear by the 1960s that the major institutions of Israeli life and leadership were dominated by the left, and the left was dominated by Ashkenazi Jews, those of European heritage. This left out half of Israel's Jewish population of Mizrahi Jews, those from the Middle East and North Africa. You didn't find many Mizrahim living on the kibbutz, and you didn't find too many of them in the army's officer corps. They didn't have much in the way of political representation, and they weren't in top positions in the government. On every metric, Mizrahi Jews were dragging behind the Ashkenazi. To use a contemporary phrase, the Ashkenazi enjoyed privileged status in Israel at the expense of the Mizrahi. It was a problem with Zionism going back decades. The simmering frustration and anger burst onto the public scene in 1959, when a bar fight in Haifa turned into a riot over an accusation familiar to us today police brutality. The music today was from the Gevatron, famous kibbutz folk singers, and another well-known folk duo called the Parvarim. Thanks for listening, everyone. You can check out my website, jewoutonow.com, jewoutonow.com. Lehitraot. See you later. Tanua, Tishma and Yatli Bech, Hakshili.